On this prequel episode, we've got our fan poll follow-ups for If Beale Street Could Talk, we're learning things about monster boyfriends, and previewing the Twilight Saga, New Moon. Oh, welcome back to This Film is Lit, podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. We took a week to go down into a sad, depressing but important place with if Beale Street could talk. We're going to talk a little bit about that more here in a second with our fan poll follow-up. But we're going to get back into the Twilight Saga, 200 pages in, <laughs> and it's the same book. It certainly has the same pacing it's issues. It's the same book. <laughs> this is my hot take. It's not a hot take. I'm sure it's been said a million times. But this is the same book as the first one, except Jacob is Bella and Bella is Edward. Boy, just sitting here and was like, you know, uh, I think we already talked about this. Did we make this joke in the Twilight episode? I think we maybe did. Uh, But just recut. We did this about something. Made this joke about something. Recut. When will my life begin from uh, Tangled? Mm -hmm. And uh, but. It's now when will the plot begin? And oh, that's God. just for this. <laughs> that's just this. <laughs> I sing that for every Twilight book so far that I've read of the first two. When will the plot begin? <laughs> because there's no plot. I mean, there is stuff happening. But anyways, we'll get to that much later. First, we've got, as we always do, our patron shout outs. No new patrons this week, but we do have our Academy Award winners. And they are Eli Young's Gratch. Dot, dot, dot. Just Gratch, Shelby Says Black Lives and Trans Lives Matter, Mr. Nobody, Cancel MLB 2020. Disagree. They're not playing in front of crowds, are they? I, I thought. I do not know. They're playing a shortened season. That I don't know if they're doing a shortened season and they're, uh, they're doing 60 games and they're testing all the players. And I thought they weren't playing in front of crowds, but maybe they are. If they're playing in front of crowds, that's stupid. But I thought they were just doing it on TV. I could be wrong. I mean,. So maybe can't, I don't know if they're doing it in front of crowds, I could maybe sign off on that. But, um, cause I believe Korean stuff or Japan was doing it without crowds and it was working just fine. I remember a pot, another podcast I listened to, um, they talked about uh, opening arguments, which some, at least one of these patrons came from that. Um, they discussed how like Japan or Korea was cause they're, they're baseball fans were discussing how they were doing it and they were doing it without crowds and stuff. And it seemed to be working fine. So, but I don't know enough of the details. I haven't been following it super closely. I know they're not having any crowds for like these spring training games they're playing. And I thought that whatever, maybe they have other reasons for canceling MLB 2020. Maybe something else happened. I don't know. And finally, Alina Deletkolova. Thank you all very much. Uh, Cancel MLB 2020. I'm going to need the deets on that. Hit us up on the social media somewhere and explain why you want to cancel MLB 2020. Or unless you mean the game. Is it like... (laughs) No, is that's it the a, show. a COVID kind of a cancel or is, or is it, it like a Twitter kind of a cancel? Yeah. Is it like literally cancel? My guess is they mean literally cancel the season instead of like doing this weird half roll. Maybe they're just upset that it's like a weird half season. I don't know. I'd be really interested to hear your reasoning because I haven't done enough research to know like what all the details are. I'm just excited to watch baseball again <laughs> if it comes back. But obviously I would only be excited if they're going to do it in a way that's safe and makes sense. But uh, from my understanding, I thought they were, but they, that might be wrong. So explain yourself. All right, that was it for our patrons. Thank you, everybody, uh, who is an Academy Award-winning patron. If you want to count yourself among that prestigious number, you can go to patreon.com slash thisfilmislit. Support us for 15 bucks a month. 
You get a shout-out every prequel episode, and you also get priority recommendations, which we've done quite a few of them already from our humble Academy Award winners. Uh, if you if you're support us at the $15 a month level, you recommend a film slash book, it jumps towards the top of our queue, uh, and you're much more likely to get it done quickly. As close as we can get it. As close as we can get it. Because um, we get a fair amount of recommendations just in general. Um and we have a huge list that we've put together of stuff we're interested in. And, we, you know, we try to diversify what we're doing. So we're not all doing just like a bunch of fantasy books or whatever. So, yeah, uh, that's that's the perk you get for being an Academy Award winning patron. Let's go ahead now and do our fan poll follow up for if Beale Street could talk. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. We didn't have a lot of engagement Very low with engagement this one. This week. <laughs> it wasn't a super super popular movie, but a little disappointed. Yeah, because it's a it's a fantastic movie. As yeah, we discussed more people should see more it. More people should definitely see it. Uh, but we did have four votes on Twitter. Uh, three of them were for the movie. One was for the book. We didn't have anybody come out to defend. One or the I other. one or the other. Yeah. Um, we did have a comment from uh, at April Edmansky. Mm-hmm. Um, who's been on our show before yep. and who also co-hosts No Such Thing as a Bad Movie podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and April said, just here to recommend Moonlight. Yeah. Very similar score and same gorgeous cinematography, but more of a neon color palette. Yeah. I, I, from what I've seen of the film, like the trailer and the posters, it's like purples and blues mm-hmm. and like neon. And it look, But it looks similarly gorgeous and I've heard it's great. So yeah. I, we, we've, we're going to watch it at some point. It's on our Hulu list because it is on hulu as well i believe um it's on our list we're gonna watch it so we still haven't gotten a freaking parasite and i'm super mad about it so we'll get there eventually and we had no engagement on facebook or instagram so there you go <laughs> that was our nobody interested follow up. wow you're all canceled <laughs> this is a very important film jeez all right let's move on uh we're gonna learn some things we got a nice long meaty learning things segment this week katie you put some work into this one we're learning about the monster boyfriend trope no matter what anybody tells you words and ideas can change the world i'm gonna sit back hang out and listen learn along with everybody else so this week we're learning about a specific trope that's probably a lot older than you might initially think it is. Now, we're calling it the monster boyfriend trope, since that's how we referred to it when it came up during our Twilight episode. That's how I referred to yeah. it. I don't know if that's even the right name for it. I just uh, TV tropes refers to it as the much more gender-neutral, you sexy beast. Fair enough. Um, but I don't think that monster boyfriend is necessarily incorrect because as i'll discuss later in the segment it is does tend, tend to, to be, be geared towards or the the monster yeah, tends to be the male. monster tends to be male geared towards women yeah. who are into men we'll yeah. talk more about it later yeah. uh, but to sum up this trope it's essentially when uh, mythical creatures that traditionally would be feared or shunned within a narrative become the object of romantic slash sexual desire. Now, usually when we see this, um, negative characteristics of these creatures get downplayed, positive characteristics get emphasized, but 
they will generally retain the definitive characteristic that makes them dangerous or that makes them that creature. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, the Twilight series downplays the fact that vampires drink human blood by making Edward a vegetarian vampire while simultaneously retaining that definitive vampire characteristic by having him crave Bella's blood like more than anything else. Yeah, they finally, they basically find a way to make the story possible. Yeah. By not just having the boyfriend eat, you know, the monster eat the person. Yeah. By like, yeah, subduing their, their normal human killing trait or whatever, or whatever their thing is, yeah. Yeah, it's still present, but we kind of find a way to to downplay it within the story. So to understand where this trope comes from, we need to go way back into folklore um, and take a look at the folklore type of the animal bridegroom. So the animal bridegroom stories appear in cultures all over the world. Um, It's one of the more common folklore types right up there with Cinderella. And animal bridegroom stories feature maidens who are married off to animals, uh, sometimes in recognizable forms, and sometimes they're more of like beasts slash monsters, like conglomerate animals. Uh, This is usually unwilling on her part initially. She might have been captured or maybe forced into the arrangement due to a male family member losing a bargain or paying off a debt of some kind. But as the story progresses, she usually comes to love the animal bridegroom. Maybe they turn out to be compatible, or perhaps she has an influence that tames him, or even breaks a curse and restores him to human form. Now, the obvious example here that everybody's going to recognize is Beauty and the Beast, but there are many, many versions of this story. Now, it's a pretty commonly accepted theory that animal bridegroom stories developed among women as a coping mechanism for dealing with arranged or otherwise unwanted Mm -hmm. marriages. Like, hey, it sucks that you have to marry this beast, but look at the bright side. Maybe he'll turn out to be a prince. Yeah. Uh But how does that relate to modern stories? After all, arranged marriage isn't really the common thing that it used to be, at least not in the Western world, but we won't get into that right now. Um, And an eternally cursed vampire isn't really quite the same as a beast who turns back into a human at the end of the story. As a side note on the flip side to that, it's also a pretty common response for girls to be disappointed by the beast's human form. So what's going on here? Okay, Now... To go off of that, like I mentioned earlier, this trope does seem to be aimed almost exclusively at women who are into men. Um, Not that monster girlfriends don't exist, but they tend to be less on the monstrous side, more humanoid, still pretty, maybe even sexy. Yeah, I mean, and this isn't the trope, but if you look at um, the... Uh, any character, <laughs> if you go to any RPG video game and look at the character creator for the male and female versions of, like, say, orcs or elves or whatever, 
generally speaking, the the male version look much more monstrous, monstrous for yeah. lack of a better word. Uh, and the female versions tend to, and even uh, this is a good example of this is the, which I believe is a little complicated because I think she's half work, but um, in the Warcraft movie, um, one of the main characters is a female orc and she's like just green, but like super sexy still. Yeah. And, uh, and most of the orcs are like these big, like hulking, you know, giant. Now I think that's one's a little complicated because I, I, if I remember correctly, she's like half human or something like that. But yeah, it's, that, that's a common thing across, uh, media, regardless of even, even outside of this specific trope yeah. that just tends to be. Yeah. Yeah, so like I said earlier, the monster boyfriend moniker isn't really far off base. It's not exactly like gender inclusive. Yeah. um, But these stories do tend to be, you know, geared towards women who are into men. And when speaking of a trope, it is potentially less problematic because you're commenting on the fact that this trope is problematic gendered in that way you know what i mean like calling it the monster boyfriend trope while not being gender neutral maybe isn't i could be convinced otherwise but to me strikes me as not like necessarily it's like calling it like if you're naming the trope and describing this trope as a potentially problematic thing the fact that the (laughs) the name of the trope isn't gender neutral to me doesn't strike me as like as problematic in and of itself no you're right i I mean mean? it's really just describing what the trope is and that is what it is right and now, obviously, there it, it, there are other examples of it uh, of swapped, you know, different versions. Yeah. But in general, yeah. So, what's going on here? Why do these stories exist? Why are women into it? Is it because it's taboo? Is it because regular human men just can't measure up? Is it an extreme version of yet another trope that all girls want bad boys? Uh, secret answer uh d all of the above (laughs) i think the answer is yes but also no (laughs) to all of those things um i think it's yes because it is taboo and it is dangerous and for a lot of people there's a certain kind of sexiness to that and if you don't believe me hop on over to amazon and look up monster erotica yes Um, And I think it's also, yes, because monster boyfriends are, at least some of them are, essentially a heightened, intensified version of traditional masculinity. They're overprotective. Maybe they're even brutish. They're huge. They're hairy, et cetera, et cetera. It's testosterone on steroids in a way. Yeah. And again, for a lot of people there's a sexual appeal to that kind of thing. And let's be real, women are often told that they should be ashamed of their sexuality. So removing a fantasy, a sexual fantasy from reality, Mm -hmm. let's say by having the heroine bang a werewolf instead of a regular dude who happens to be hairy and domineering, that's a way to cope with that shame. Yeah. And... Let's not forget, too, that it's just not it's not just about sex. The heroine in these stories can see what's beyond that brutish exterior and access the heart of gold that's on the inside. Maybe she can bring out the good that was always there, or maybe she can change him for the better, but she's almost always the only one who can do so. And 
A lot of people would call that toxic, and I'm not going to disagree. It's a bit hung up on ideas about women as a, quote, civilizing force that can beat back a man's animalistic nature, and there's a lot that's problematic about that. Yeah, and on and on top of just the, the, the reinforcement of traditional gender roles and, and, and the, the concept of gender in general, and it's, yeah, there's a lot of messiness tied up in it, but yeah. yeah. But at their core, many of these stories are also about trust and exchange of power. The monster boyfriend might be a literal monster, but at the end of the day, it's the human woman who calls the shots. She is the center of the monster boyfriend's world, the only one with the power to tame the beast, and even though he might be a brute, the monster boyfriend would never willingly harm her in any way. And that is a narrative coping mechanism as real as anything. Indeed. Indeed. That's the monster boyfriend. Well, sorry. That's the, what was the, what did you monster call it? Monster boyfriend. Well, yes. But uh, you you had sexy a, beast. You sexy the, beast yeah. trope. I was going to go with the gender neutral term. Might as well. Um, that is the you sexy beast trope. Now, you are a little more learned, as am I. That was a fun little primer. I prefer primer. You prefer primer I to prefer primer? I prefer primer to primer. Primer is paint. <laughs> That's I to me I think that's what it is. Like primer is paint. Primer um, is the thing where you're learning something. In my head, and I know that's yeah. not like the actual distinction, but for me, anyways, that's not important. <laughs> Let's move on and do some book facts for New Moon. I love you. You're my only reason to stay alive. If that's what I am. It's time. It's time. Happy birthday, Bella. Let's open your presents. There's a cake too. Alice, that cake could feed 50. You guys don't even eat. Thanks. Oh, paper cut. What happened with Jasper was nothing. Nothing compared to what could have happened. And I promise never to put you through anything like this ever again. This is the last time you'll ever see me. Twilight Saga, New Moon. Twilight Saga, New Moon. Is a 2006 romantic fantasy novel by author Stephanie Meyer. It is the second novel in the Twilight series. We're chugging along towards the halfway point yep. in this series. Four books. And I mentioned in the Twilight prequel, I believe was where I talked about this, that when Meyer finished writing Twilight, she found herself writing multiple hundred-page epilogues to the story and has been quoted as saying, I quickly realized I wasn't ready to stop writing about Bella and Edward. Who would be? Uh. <laughs> so she began writing a sequel, which was titled Forever Dawn. But while she was working on it, she learned that Twilight was going to be published as a young adult novel. Now, one problem with Forever Dawn as a sequel, though, was that it was not a young adult novel. It time-jumped a few years, uh, skipping Bella's last year of high school, and it apparently also had more mature themes. Um, we're going to learn a little bit more about Forever Dawn in our Breaking Dawn prequel. Um, but I did want to mention it here because that was like the first sequel that she wrote to Twilight it was like a time jump, huh. like more mature novel. 
is did did it turn and I mean we don't want to spoil a lot of stuff, but did it essentially morph into Breaking Dawn? She said that she used some of what happened in it as a basis for Breaking Dawn. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Which <laughs> I can't wait for us to get to Breaking Dawn. Like you're gonna love it. It's a trip. As long as things happen, I'm on board. Well, like, things do happen. Okay, thank God. <laughs> now, obviously, the next book after Twilight needed to be young adult. Yeah. Since that's what Twilight was being published as. So Stephanie Meyer started on a new sequel that took place during Bella's senior year of high school. Um, she started outlining the book and thinking of what her characters would do and claims that she, quote, swiftly regretted asking them for the story. She says she didn't like the idea of Edward leaving and tried to think of other plot options. But in the end, she said she accepted the inevitability of it. Uh, I'm, I'm a little. Uh, I'm a little confused by what the quote swiftly regretted asking them for the story. Who is them in this instance? Them is it the, characters? the characters. Okay, okay, yes. okay. I, that's what I thought, but I just wanted to clarify and make sure there wasn't like. So okay. a lot of um, a lot of writers approach their stories like that, right? By like quote asking the characters. Yeah. I I tend to be more plot driven as a writer, so like. No offense to anyone who does this. I always find that like a little bit hokey sounding. That like, oh, I just asked the character. Well, that's what that's they like George R. R. Martin's big but thing, right? Yeah, yeah, like that's it's his character big, like, driven. gardening fucking uh, thing that he talks about, like growing a garden and like kind of or whatever. It's, it's like character driven yeah. versus, and it's like the plot grows from the whatever. Um, okay, I just wanted to make sure it wasn't like she had asked like this, the the online forums or something. Like that's who the <laughs> that them would be was. even better. Actually, yeah. no, she asked the characters. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, and yeah. apparently the characters told her that Edward just had to leave. Um, she's also said that she found it difficult to write Bella's pain over Edward's departure and often cried while writing those parts. But apparently she had never suffered a heartbreak like Bella's, apparently never had her heart broken. So she couldn't draw inspiration from personal experience, but supposedly based it on how she thought she would feel if she lost a child, which is not weird at all. But, but not because she had lost a child. Right. Just how she thought how she, she, thought might, she feel might feel if she lost a child. But she couldn't put her place in the mindset of how she thought she might feel if her boyfriend left. I feel <laughs> That's like... That's so weird. Yeah. Like, like, I feel like you should maybe imagine, like, oh, how would I feel if my husband left me? Yeah. Or, like, I don't yeah. know. What a, it's a little bit odd. It's a strange choice. Because, again, it's not like, if, if you had said, like, oh, but she based it on how she felt when her mother died or something. Like, the loss she felt when her mother died. Okay. Like, you're pulling from some real thing. But she's pulling from a, an imagined scenario that's, that's just not, different than the imagined yeah, scenario that the she's imagined writing. scenario. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure what she's got going on, <laughs> as we've covered before. <laughs> so the title "New Moon" was chosen to reflect the mood of the sequel, um, and also to follow up with the the twilight kind of celestial like yeah. sky theme. Sky theme. Yeah. Uh, as this is the blackest period in Bella's life, Amaya felt it was appropriate to name the book after the darkest kind of night, a night with no moon, mm. hence new moon. Are we still using blackest to describe bad things? <laughs> I feel like maybe we shouldn't. The, uh, 
the I don't want to use darkest twice. I feel like darkest is better. Oh, darkest. did you use darkest somewhere else? Yeah. The most absolute the most time of night. <laughs> absolute, uh, yeah. Whatever. I was just being... Moonless. No moon. Anyway, um, Maya wrote no moon in five months. She has said that she found the editing process much longer and more difficult than the same process with Twilight. Also, unlike Twilight, which Meyer had intended not to publish at first, which we discussed, she this time knew that New Moon was going to be published and had what she described as a horrible feeling, much like stage fright while she was writing it, which I think is understandable. I think there's a freeness to just like writing something for yourself. Oh yeah, that you can't get when you like know that yeah. it's gonna be published yeah, writing the and read by be a billions night. of people. It's gotta be a nightmare. Like writing the first one, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. What it is what it is. Second one, oh boy, yeah. And like knowing too how strong of feelings people have about the story. Yeah, that must have been awful. I don't envy her that. No, no. The first draft of New Moon apparently differed significantly from the manuscript published. Um, originally, Bella was not going to find out that Jacob was a werewolf, so as a result, we were going to lose about 70 pages following Bella's discovery of Jacob's true nature. Darn. <laughs> well, I'm not there yet. <laughs> I can't wait for that. That'll be at least be something going on, other than motorcycle repair. Meyer has also stated that while many thought she planned for Jacob to be a werewolf from the very beginning, that was actually not the case. Um, Twilight was originally going to be a standalone novel, so she hadn't planned further than that, which is totally not obvious at all no. as you continue to read the series. Um, but while the uh, Quileut legend about the tribe being descended from wolves is real, Meyer added the bit about the cold ones and them having like a centuries old beef with vampires, and that apparently happened to work out in her favor. And speaking of things that just happened to work out in her favor, I'm going to put a big allegedly in front of this one because this is all according to Stephanie Meyer. Okay. So when she was coming up with the location in Italy to be the home place of the antagonistic Volturi, she originally didn't want to use a real city, much like she did with like Forks, um, but instead wanted to make up an imaginary city. She wanted to place an imaginary city called Volturin in Tuscany. However, upon consulting a map, she discovered that there was already a city called Volterra in the area. Hmm. So she went with Volterra and called it, quote, a pretty creepy coincidence. I can buy that in the sense that she probably did research and titled and named the Volturi based on some sort of Italian something. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, but she probably did. Like she probably looked up something and came across and then so went with the Volturi and then came up with a riff on that name. And because she based Volturi on something Italian, the, the fact that there's a city called Volterra is not, like, that yeah. odd of a coincidence. You know what I mean? I also just really, I really like, though, I like the idea that she's, like, the anti-J.K. Rowling. 
where like oh, it wasn't planned the from the beginning, yeah. but it just like keeps working out for some reason. Yeah. The names don't actually mean, anything, don't mean anything, but it just keeps working out in her favor. The names are the <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's true. None of the characters are named like vampire vampire in another language. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh god. I mean, she did give them like for the most part period appropriate names, so there's that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So. And do we know if she's a giant transphobe? <laughs> Probably. I mean, probably. Probably. Odds but at are least high. she's not tweeting about it. Ay, ay, ay. Uh, supposedly, when advance reading copies of the book began to go out, Meyer would ask people to read New Moon all the way through twice. I'm going to read you this quote from her website. She said, I've found that readers are so anxious about the absence of Edward that they can't settle into the middle portion of the book. They skim and speed read and flip ahead until, at last, they find him again. However, at that point, they've missed the main section of the novel almost completely. On a second reading, knowing that Edward will return to the story at the proper place and time, the reader can slow down. What's your take on that? I mean, I'm not speed reading. I mean, part of that's because we're doing it for the show, not just for like, because I want to. I could see if I was super into it. And even then I wouldn't. I, I would. I mean, I get what she's saying that like if this character is super important to you and you're like, where's this? When's this character? Go? When, like you, it would it would definitely cause a distraction. Mm hmm. I could understand what she's saying. Um, and so I definitely could see there's a time because there is something to be said. You know, we talked about that. We've talked about this before in terms of like movies and stuff that sometimes on a second. Watch, I mean, not sometimes every time on a second watching, you see stuff you missed the first time. Yeah. And even in some regards, sometimes that's it's if you if you know the outcome or like if you've heard about something is going to happen, like like a certain episode of Game of Thrones where, you know, something happens at the end. Maybe you don't you're so like anxious for that moment to happen. Mm -hmm. I'm just choosing game of Thrones. Cause it's the first thing that jumped in my head where like a big event happens that people had spoiled for them or whatever. Um, it can definitely take away from your enjoyment of yeah. the events leading up to that. Whereas the second time through, it's not as, you know, you're, you're prepared for it. So mm -hmm. it's not as, um, you're able to take in the scenery a little bit better. So I get what she's saying. You know, I get it. Upon publication in the United States. I don't understand um, being in such a <laughs> maddening desire for Edward to re-enter the books. I do not understand that at all. Me, I'm like, woof. I actually just made a note last night where I was reading. I was like, God, Jacob is so much better than Edward. I, I'm team Jacob I all the way. I want to talk about, <laughs> yes, I so much want to talk about that when we get to the main episode. Because reading this at 16... I was like Team Edward all the way. Oh God, no! And now reading it again as a grown-up, yes. I'm like Team Jacob. Team, team Jacob. Jacob. It's not even close. <laughs> He's just like a chill dude who likes fixing up cars and is like the opposite of toxic masculinity <laughs> so far. Except for that weird, potentially problematic uh, gay subtext thing they got going on. We'll talk about that in the main episode. I don't even know if you know what I'm talking about, but we'll get there. Okay, we'll get there. All right. So upon its publication in the United States, New Moon was highly successful, moved very quickly to the top of the bestseller lists, 
one of the most highly anticipated books of the year. It peaked at number one on the on both the New York Times bestseller list and USA Today's top 150 bestsellers, and it was the best-selling children's paperback of 2008. Over 5.3 million copies sold. Reception for New Moon was more positive than its predecessor. Uh, a lot of people criticized the middle section's pacing, but critics generally argued that the novel was more mature in tone and praised the character development and depiction of human emotion. For example, Nora Peel of teenreads.com thought that in the middle, the story sometimes drags and readers may long for the vampire's return, though she believed that New Moon will leave Meyer's many fans breathless for the sequel as Bella finally understands everything that will be at stake if she makes the ultimate choice to give up her humanity and live like vampires forever. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't uh, I don't disagree. Um, I think it's... I don't know. Yeah, pacing's my biggest issue. So yeah. Far. Yeah. And it being a slight rehash of... It's not a rehash, but like a, a very similar structure in terms yeah, of... Yeah, it's very similar. So far, I'm just over 200 pages in, but it's, it's like, okay. Just watching the relationship for page chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter which i get i get this is how we get the whole team jacob versus team edward thing we gotta have the we did the whole team edward the first book we gotta do team jacob this book but woof it's uh, at least it's like infinitely less creepy than watching it is the relationship no it really is that i would that is one of the things is that it it, it, yeah in in that regard their relationship is much less gross yeah like it's just like well it's less gross it's still cringy (laughs) but it's less gross yeah all right uh let's go ahead and talk about new moon the movie how much could you mean to him if he left you here i'm protected but i can't help myself you are so mouth-watering New Moon is a 2009 film written again by Melissa Rosenberg, but directed this time by Chris Weitz. What? Weitz? I don't know exactly. Right Weitz, probably. W-E-I-T-Z. Who directed The Golden Compass, another infamous uh, (laughs) uh, book adaptation. That one was great. (laughs) I never saw it, never read it. Um, I heard good things about the book series, but I've never seen or, uh, or read. He also directed About a Boy, or I think, believe, co-directed that, uh, and Down to Earth, which is a Chris Rock movie, and Operation Finale, and he was one of the writers on Rogue One. Hmm. So, Catherine Hardwick did not return for the sequel because the release date wouldn't allow her enough time to work on the script, in her opinion. There was conflict with the studio. They were like, we want it one year after, and she's like, that's not enough time. And so they're like, all right, we'll find somebody else. She was probably right. Probably right. I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. So, uh, White's released a statement shortly after uh, the announcement that he was going to be directing, assuring Twilight fans that he would, quote, protect on their behalf the characters, themes, and story they love. 
He continued by saying, this is not a task to be taken lightly, and I will put every effort into realizing a beautiful film to stand alongside a beautiful book. That's so, nice. There you go. That's a nice thing to say. So apparently, and this is interesting, whites considered recasting Jacob Black due to the taller and larger version of Jacob Black we get in New Moon. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of the first thing is he's now six foot five and, you know, muscular, whereas he was because he's he's gone through puberty over the course of the the puberty, intervening puberty will do that the intervening seven months or whatever since we kind of last saw him in the book uh in the previous book um but taylor, taylor lautner petitioned to keep the role by working out and stuff and adding like 30 pounds of muscle and they were like all right <laughs> you can keep the role and i'm sure there was also no shortage of fan yeah. sort of you know yeah uh, outrage online about recasting that role so this is interesting. Uh, different cameras and shooting setups were, were used to, throughout the course of this film to serve different story points. When Bella was with Edward, the camera was moved on a dolly, which is uh, basically a big track on wheels, mm-hmm. basically, in a very rigid straight line, apparently to reflect how their relationship was perfect, quote unquote. I feel like that better reflects how the relationship is rigid. Yes, I did. I agree with that. That's what I actually thought it was going to say when I was reading this. And I was like, oh, perfect. That's the word you went with. Okay. Um, when Bella's with Jacob, they use a steady cam, which is a, if you don't know what a steady cam is, uh, it's a big, well, it, depending on the system, can be big or small. But generally speaking, it's like a, a, a chest harness that the camera sits on. And it's like a spring-loaded arm, and it's very smooth, and, and it creates very fluid, organic movements. Mm-hmm. And you can go anywhere you want with it because it's the operator wherever they can walk around. The, um, the camera can go, whereas on a dolly, it can only go on the tracks, and you have to set up. You know, it's it's a lot yeah. more. Um, I've seen you use a steady cam. Before. Yeah, yeah, I've used uh, several different steady cams at different times uh, on different things I've worked on. Um, I've used one of the ones that is like the big chest harness one with a, a spring-loaded arm and stuff, uh, but nowadays. Depending on what you're doing, like you can get a, a little gimbal, like a motorized gimbal that you hold in two hands that's tiny mm-hmm. and accomplishes a very similar thing as a steady cam um, for much less of the hassle. So, but yeah. But for the larger, like, because this was actually shot on film, I read too, as opposed oh. to digital. So they probably had a much larger camera than you, they would potentially need otherwise. So they probably actually used like a more traditional, like, harness steady cam thing. But they used the steady cam for Jacob and Bella scenes uh, because of the fluid organic style, as I mentioned. And then when she was with schoolmates, they used a uh, handheld shot to add like a sort of like chaotic, slangy visual language to the hmm. to the shots. We put a lot of thought into this. Apparently, we'll we'll see. Well, I mean, it's something to look out for as you're yeah. watching the film. To see if that yeah, helps the viewing see, like, experience it, at all. If it brings a different kind of mood. Because to that is a scenes. big that is a big part in, you know, uh it's something a lot of people don't think about. That is a huge component of uh cinematography is choosing how you're gonna shoot something. Mm-hmm. Is are you gonna have it on a tripod? Are you gonna help shoot it handheld? Are you gonna have movement at all? Is it gonna be zooming? Is it gonna be panning? You know, all those different things, and they all imply different things. Like they and and a lot of it is implies things to the audience that the audience doesn't even realize they're getting necessarily if they don't think about it too much. But shooting handheld is more frenetic. Our doorbell just rang. It's probably UPS or FedEx. Yeah. I'll double check. The doorbell. Oh, if it's a conservative politician, say something rude. Ah. It's the uh, cat pine pellets. Oh, no wonder it's heavy. It's 50 pounds of cat pine pellets. Elvis. Yeah. I'm be so happy. Okay. 
but anyways, uh, the yes, the how you shoot something. Uh, UPS guy really got me off the rails here, off my dolly tracks, as it were. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, a lot of times that the you know the the different visual styles of of how the different choices for how things are shot affect completely how you view what you're what you're watching, even if the audience doesn't necessarily pick up on mm-hmm. the fact that they that the different style is affecting what they're viewing. Like I said, I think what I was getting into is like, if you shoot something handheld, it's more frenetic. And it's a lot of times it's used for scenes where there's a lot of action or if there's a lot of people and it's supposed to, or if it's supposed to induce anxiety in a certain situation, having a handheld sort of shakier camera yeah. can add to that feeling of anxiety of, of um, energy, that sort of thing. Whereas in certain situations, if you're trying some, so that can add tension, but you can also add tension sometimes in certain situations. If you lock the camera down, it's on a tripod and it just holds. And then you, you get to really focus on the performance and what you're seeing in the shot. Lots of, there's a million different ways to film things. I feel but, like um, something we could compare it to that probably everybody will know what we're talking about is how a sitcom that's filmed with like three stationary cameras yeah feels way different from yes. a sitcom that's filmed like With mockumentary one, yeah. style or a mockumentary style or yeah so a lot of uh sitcoms older like stage sitcoms are filmed with a, a three camera sitcom where they have you know it's on a sound stage and there's three cameras set up and they're on big uh like zoomed in and that sort of thing um and they're all on tripods and there's not mm-hmm. a lot of movement to them and then some more modern but even older shows uh comedies and sitcoms and stuff are shot either handheld or with one camera and they can do a lot more cinematic stuff and it just feels completely different you know uh, and that is a very obvious sort of thing that doesn't necessarily dictate it's it's a little bit different but it it is a similar idea so this is my favorite fun fact you have oh this is wild i i assume that this was said in an interview and i assume maybe i know why it is i really want i think i know why and i want that to be why okay so according to this is I believe this was from IMDb Trivia, but it might have been from Wikipedia. I can't remember where I got this. I think it was IMDb Trivia. Apparently, New Moon is Robert Pattinson's favorite book in the Twilight series. And there's a 0% chance that the reason for that is because he's not in most of yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's Robert Pattinson. Yeah. That's definitely why. Absolutely. He was like, I got to show up and film one day at the beginning of the month. At the beginning of the shoot, and then I showed up at the end. It's great. It was great. He probably read through the book and, and was, was like, like, "Yes." <laughs> he was like that uh, that gif of Robert Downey Jr. where he's like clutching yeah. his chest. <laughs> yeah, I still get all the residuals for being in this movie, and I don't have to be in this movie. Sign me up. <laughs> I'm sure he's still one of the top build people too. So he get you know, like he's yeah. probably like number three on the Yeah. I bet it's like Kristen Stewart, uh, Taylor Lautner, and then him. Maybe not even it might, he might even still be like second, but I don't know what the billing is on these movies. But I wouldn't be surprised if he was still in the top three or four, even yeah. though he's not in most of it, probably. Yeah. So uh editor Peter Lambert apparently, according to him, edited a portion of this film during his daily commute. And the, this may be the smart. very first motion picture, major motion picture in which the a large majority of the first assembly edit was done in the backseat of a car, which I thought was wild. 
I, I'm going to pay attention to that editing to see if uh, that is reflected of the fact that a guy was on a laptop in the back of a car cutting this together in like iMovie or whatever. But like, not it's surely just it's not. efficient. Yeah. He's making the best use of his well, time. Well, because yeah, surely he lives in LA and he's take you know, traveling places and it takes yeah. three hours to get anywhere in LA. He's in the backseat. He, he probably has somebody driving him or whatever. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even then, I, yeah, taking a cab or Uber. Yeah. I, I don't, I think Uber was around in 2009 but yeah i'm sure yeah no i'm yeah he wasn't driving he was hey, he was in the back seat but my point being that regardless you don't have necessarily the most powerful editing setup in a situation yeah. like that and he also wouldn't have access it's a weird it's just a strange thing to me as somebody who who knows how editing works a little bit um you can definitely edit on like a laptop and stuff but you would have to have the video it's it's an assembly edit so it doesn't it's it's different like it's still weird to me. It's just a little strange. Although maybe he's remoting in. I guess that's possible. He could be remoting into a computer. I don't know. Yeah. It's, well, however he's doing it, it's uh, it's interesting. Although, it was an interesting fun thing. Up until you said that he was in the backseat of a car, I was really pleased with the mental image of him like on a bus somewhere oh, or like in yeah. the subway. Just yeah. like clickety-clack editing the second Twilight movie. Yeah. Somebody's just sitting next to him like glances over like... That looks terrible. <laughs> <laughs> These fucking film students and their projects. <laughs> uh, um, so the film was released on November 20th, 2009 in most countries, and it set domestic box offices in America um, as the biggest midnight screening, grossing $26.3 million in its first night. Uh, but that was surpassed by its sequel, Eclipse. Uh, and then later on, it, it, it eventually... or. Over the course of its first uh, one day, not just the opening night, it broke the record for the biggest one day gross in the U.S. with $72 million beating The Dark Knight. They're very popular movies. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it. This was a whole thing. Yep. The film. The last thing. uh, The critical reception. I don't have any written reviews, but I do have some scores. The film holds a score of 28% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. 44% 44% whatever positive on Metacritic and has a 4.7 out of 10 on IMDb from user reviews. Uh, just for comparison's sake, and I think I'm going to do this with all the movies from here on out so we can get a feel for how everybody felt about all the films. Uh, Twilight, the first movie, had 49% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, so it dropped from 49% to 28% fresh. Had a 56% approval rating on Metacritic, so it dropped 12% for the sequel. And then had a 5.2 out of 10 on IMDb, um, so it dropped 0.5%. Now, the IMDb one I only include just because these were always going to never have a a realistic no, IMDb no. score. It's IMDb scores are kind of meaningless like the the user score is kind of meaningless uh, to be fair critic like the critic aggregators are also you know you take them in in their context of what they are because yeah it's it's I, this is the kind of thing that imdb scores tend to reflect poorly upon uh, as we've discussed this is you know the sort of the the shitty internet meme culture of the mid 2000s where and, and current day still but where things like this get dumped on just Mm -hmm. because like angry nerds on the internet want to hate it for no reason. You know what I mean? Like just like one star twilight gay, like, you know, stuff like that. I mean, we're, we're watching right now. We're watching a a series on Netflix that just came out called cursed and it's got like a five out of 10 on IMDb. And I was like, we were watching. I was like, it's fine. Like it's pretty good so far. Like we were only a few episodes in and then we went, I went and I was scrolling through the reviews on IMDb. It's like all 
angry people like SJW is ruining. It's like okay, great, cool. So yeah, it's one of those things where the scores on IMDb don't take them with a grain of salt. Uh, but those are probably fairly accurate. <laughs> to be fair, I'm not saying that the five out of ten is necessarily wrong. I'm just saying that sometimes you got to take those with a grain of salt. Katie, where do we watch this? Well, you can check with your local library. Always encourage you to try and do that first. Yeah. If you don't already own a copy of this fine film. Uh, the series, the entire series also airs fairly frequently on Freeform, which I believe used to be ABC I Family. I think it was ABC Family, which used to be Fox Family or whatever, yeah. or not One of the, it, it's been like three, it's that channel has changed names like eight times. Yeah, but, but yeah. we, we have a YouTube TV and yeah. we recorded the entire series. Yeah. And we have it like on our DVR yeah, yeah, virtual or whatever. DVR, yeah, or, virtual you know, DVR. DVR. Yeah. Um, so, so, you, yeah. so you might be able to find it there if you have access to that channel. If you have, search for it, it's probably if you have any sort of cable again. or satellite or anything yeah. like that. Uh, you can also rent through Amazon Prime. That's what we did for the first one because yes. the first one we couldn't record. We so. and it's like four bucks. Uh, you can rent through YouTube movies, mm-hmm. which I think is around the same price yeah, as Amazon bucks. Prime. Yeah. And if your Hulu account, if you upgraded that to Hulu Live, yeah. you can watch it through Hulu Live, but not with a normal Hulu account. You can also go to if you still have a local video store. Yeah. Which we actually do. but We do. We, just we have a family video here. I, I, I would have to create a new account. Cause yes, you would. I believe I owe quite a few dollars <laughs> yes, in fees. those movies in your car for I like months. I forgot they were there for a long time. I mean, in your defense, they were in the glove box, which you never open. Yeah, I don't ever need to. Uh, and yep. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so those are all the places you can watch. The Twilight Saga, New Moon. We hope you do and that you come back in one week's time as we assuredly spend three hours breaking down (laughs) New Moon uh, as we we didn't intend to with the first one, but it ended up being a three-hour episode somehow, even though we're like, surely we won't have as much to talk about as we did with like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, but apparently we did. So, in one week's time, that is what we're doing. And until that time... Guys, gals, non-binary, everybody else. Keep reading books. (laughs) Keep watching movies. And And keep keep being awesome. awesome.